Welcome to the Via Emmaus Podcast. My name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Schrock, who is the pastor of preaching and theology here at Aquaquam Bible Church, located about 30 miles south of Washington, D.C. in Woodbridge, Virginia. Good afternoon, David. How was your New Year's? Been good. So, no crises yet, and I've uh, been reading the Bible plan we've been doing at church, and uh, excited to hear that many people have been doing that as well, and so excited for the new year. Awesome. So speaking of the Bible plan, uh, I happened to be looking in the Aquaquam Bible Church app, and I noticed that when you're in the default screen, um, which is the home screen, at the very bottom there is a logo that says Bible. When you click on that, it not only has that Bible, but it has our reading plan, verse by verse, mm -hmm. chapter by chapter. Mm -hmm. And the amazing part is, is that there's an audio button at the bottom. When you click that, it mm -hmm. actually reads to you. Yep. So last night, me and my family, uh, at dinner time, at the dinner table, we actually listened to the scriptures for the reading plan yep. as a family. And I just think this is a perfect way for those of us who are on the go, who have to travel, who are in traffic, can you know listen to the Bible and Absolutely. go through the reading plan without having to um, find time in the day um, outside of their regular routine. Yeah. Now, that's part of the plan. We want to give as many ways to be able to be in the Word, uh, whether it's with a old-fashioned book, right. uh, whether it is uh, something you can listen to, uh, something you can read on your digital device, however that is. Uh, we want to be immersed in God's Word and to give that to people as many ways as possible. For those who don't already have the app, you can go to the Google Play Store or the iPhone App Store and just type in Aquaquam Bible Church and the app will come right up. It's free. So. Take advantage. That's right. No charges for that. That's right. So, so let's get into um, the reason why we're here, and that is the Word of God. So as I was reading through with my family, um, I did find some things that were interesting. And it's always amazing how when we read the Bible, um, even the scriptures that we've read before, things will jump out at us that we didn't previously see, how God will reveal stuff in the scriptures to us that... Um, at a specific time and place mm -hmm. that we didn't catch the first time or the yeah. first times that we've read it. Um, one thing in particular was the seventh day in God's rest. In Genesis 2, 1, um, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he had rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So I personally have run across doctrines um, where... People say that if you don't um, recognize the Sabbath, that you're not saved. People mm -hmm. have made a theology mm -hmm. or a doctrine specifically right. around this, the Sabbath day. Yeah. So in the New Covenant, how does the Sabbath apply to us? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, first thing we want to do is just ask the question, how does Genesis 1 and 2 present the seventh day? Right, so the word Shabbat, the, which is the word seven. Uh, so for us, that's the Saturday. Uh, we sometimes talk about a Christian Sabbath on Sunday. Right. Um, but even the question you ask, I mean, that's getting into the new covenant a little bit. So it's worth asking the question, okay, what does it mean, first of all, that God is resting on the seventh day? Right. Uh, is he tired uh, from the first six days and what he's done creating that? Uh, certainly he has made a massive universe. Uh, could be reason for being tired. But he's not tired, right? So the rest here is not that he is fatigued uh, and needs to just kind of have a day off. 
rather, it's a kind of enjoyment uh, that is there. He is delighting in the creation that he has made. And the ideal before uh, the fall was that God's people would dwell in that seventh day with him. Uh, you read back in Genesis 1, 28, that God says that he blessed Adam and Eve. Right? So there's a sense in which there is going to be this peace and shalom and goodness, this rest that was going to be there. Um, and so that was the goal, that was the plan. Of course, sin enters in in Genesis chapter 3 and is going to bring the fall and a curse to creation. It's going to ruin all of those things. Uh, and so at that point, we begin to see how this rest has been lost. And in so many ways, the rest of the Bible uh, is seeking to regain Eden, to regain rest, but not just going back to Eden, but going forward to a greater place of rest that is found Ultimately, in the person of Christ, who will come in Matthew eleven twenty eight, it says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So there's something personal about that rest that is found in him. But I just jump from Genesis to, to Matthew. There's a lot in between. Uh, in particular, what we find in the Ten Commandments, right? In the Ten Commandments, you have uh, the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy, uh, which is a day where the people of God would cease activity in order to turn to the Lord and to worship him and to really receive his refreshment on that day. Uh, so when the people were in the wilderness, uh, they would not go out and get manna uh, on the seventh day. God gave a double portion on, uh, on Friday uh, so that they would be able to rest physically on that day and to turn their attention towards him. And then, of course, when they came into the land, they would continue to keep uh, that Sabbath rest as well on the seventh day so that they could worship, so they could bring offerings, so they could come and, and gather with God's people. And, and even there is a sabbatical system. Uh, Leviticus 23 talks about the different feasts and festivals that are there. That The whole calendar year was established for this purpose of, of Sabbath rest. Um, for us, in the New Covenant, uh, there are some things that change. Uh, I think when we looked at Hebrews this fall, uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 speak about the rest that is found in Christ. And one of the things that, that I argued there was the fact that we often think of Sabbath rest as a time, as a day. And yet, if we recognize that it's associated with Eden and where God is dwelling and think of it more as a place than a time or a place and a time, it's helpful to see the way in which um, in the Old Testament, the people had to set aside a day in order to go to Jerusalem, right? God put his... Uh, name in Jerusalem so that the right. people of God would come and dwell there with him, worship him at his footstool, at his temple there in Jerusalem. Today, there is no singular place where the people of God must go. Rather, there are congregations and assemblies all over the world that gather in the name of Christ and his spirit is there with them, the word of God is there with them. And when that happens, we have received a kind of rest by the Spirit and the Word because of the finished work of Christ. Right, that's what so, I was thinking, the yeah, Holy Spirit. That's exactly it. So what Hebrews talks about is that in Christ today, there is a rest that is found, and there still is a future rest that we're anticipating when the new heavens and the new earth come, and we dwell eternally with the Lord. So maybe, I think as finite creatures, it's good for us to put some places in our schedule to physically rest. But ultimately, the rest that we find in the New Covenant is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, and that is where our, our hope lies. Well, Genesis was written so long ago. Could it be said that the book is now contradicted by our science? Yeah, another can of worms uh, to, to open up there. So I'm glad in our first podcast, really kind of getting <laughs> into some of the, the things here. Um, you know, 
One of the things that I've often said is that Genesis is not written in response to Charles Darwin. Right. Right. It is written in response to the polytheism uh, that is found in Egypt and Mesopotamia and the places around uh, Israel at that time. We remember that Moses is writing Genesis after the Exodus took place. Um, he's writing it to a people who are in the wilderness. He's writing it so that people who have come out of Exodus, out of the Egypt, uh, have been redeemed by the Lord, might know their Creator, and that it's not one of many gods who has created different aspects or has different rule, a ruler, uh, different places to rule over the world, but rather He is the one God who's created all things. And so Moses is helping us to see there is one personal God who is powerful over all things. And in Genesis one, we see His name Elohim uh, as the God who creates everything. Now, what's striking about Elohim is that it's a plural word. Right? So Elohim in the Hebrew, like that ending would mean God. Sometimes it's even translated gods. But in the case of God, he is one God but has a plural name. How do we make sense of that? Well, one author, uh, William Van Gemmeren, uh, has said that basically what all the gods of Egypt did to oversee the sky and the water and the fertility of the land and everything else like that, God is over all of them. Right. right, And so he is the creator of all of those things, and Genesis 1 then describes how he has created that um, and created it as a dwelling place to be with man and man to be with him in his image. Uh, and in that way, it, it tells us that there is a creator behind everything. It doesn't give us every single detail of how that happens. And so solid believers who believe in the inerrancy of the Bible may disagree on the length of time of the days in Genesis 1. Right. But I think what we have to keep in mind is that there is a God who has made all things. Uh, there is a God who has made us in His image. Adam was a historical person who had a historical fall that led uh, humanity into sin. And therefore, all humanity is cursed and uh, has disobeyed in Adam, as Romans 5 speaks of. Uh, but there and it's written, it's not giving us every single detail about science. Right. Uh, it gives us a, a world in which God has made the world, and so scientists, you know, biologists, and chemists, and uh, physicists, and everything else should study the world to see what is there, uh, and to be able to give glory to God in that. Uh, and the more that we know, uh, I don't think there's going to be a contradiction between God who's spoken the world into existence, and the world that we study, uh, therein. But I think it's helpful to remember why it was written in the beginning. Right. I think you kind of answered my next question, which was how should we understand Genesis? Mm. Yeah. We should understand it on its own terms, right? So whenever we come to the Bible, we want to ultimately see how does this apply to me, right? But as we read Genesis, it's written from Moses to a people in about 1400 BC. Do the math, it's about 3400 years ago. Uh, so we have to understand its original context before we had apply it to ourselves. So a language I often will use is we want to read the Bible on its own terms. And in Genesis then, we have 50 chapters. So Moses was not writing with chapters. Uh, he wrote with something known as a Toledot structure. So Toledot is just the word generation. So if you look in Genesis 2 verse 4, right, it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Turn a few pages to chapter 5 and verse 1, and, and again it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And you'll continue to find those. So in chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. And you'll find the language of these generations about 10 times uh, in the book of Genesis. Five of them will show up 
uh, in Genesis 1 through 11. Five of them will show up at the very end of Genesis 11 all the way through Genesis chapter 50. And so one of the things that's helpful to see is that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are given as kind of a, a universal story. How did the world get here? How did it go wrong? How is God going to bring redemption to the world? Uh, we see the judgment of God upon sin in uh, the flood and then God's judgment upon the world through the Tower of Babel. Um, five times in Genesis 1 through 11, the word curse shows up. And interestingly, in Genesis 12, when he begins to show how he's going to bring redemption to the world and bring blessing to the world, the word bless shows up five times. Uh, so one of the things we see is that Genesis is written very carefully. Um, one uh, pastor has said that the Holy Spirit is a super grammarian, right? We believe that the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write these words, and so we see uh, that it's written very carefully. Moses was trained in Egypt. He knew a thing or two about uh, ancient Near Eastern um, literature and treaties and covenants and all the rest and poetry, and we see that here. Uh, and so I think it's helpful for us to read the Bible on its own terms. And so for those reading through the Bible plan right now, uh, recognize, okay, Genesis 1 through 11 is a section of kind of universal history uh, and helping to see that at play. Maybe also just to see there is a relationship between Adam and Noah, right? That Adam and Noah, uh, Noah comes and he is commanded like Adam to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, Noah is going to uh, find himself naked and drunk and God's judgment comes on him in the same way it did for Adam and his nakedness. It's almost as if Noah is a second Adam uh, and yet that second Adam is not bringing salvation and so the story continues. And so how do we apply it to ourselves? Uh, we do that by reading it on its own terms and then continue to read it as it prepares the way for more of God's redemptive story. That's good stuff. Is there anything we should keep in mind when we're studying Genesis? Um, so I guess three things I'd say. One is just the, the structure of Genesis. Again, those, those generation markers are helpful there. Uh, when you get into chapters 12 through 50, you're going to move from Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to Joseph. We'll have time to talk about that in the weeks ahead. Uh, so just the structures that are there. Uh, secondly, this idea of seed. Right? So in Genesis 3, uh, verse 15, uh, the curse comes upon the serpent because he leads man and woman into sin. Uh, and it says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring or your seed and her seed. You shall bruise his head and you shall bruise, or he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So uh, sometimes we can jump from that verse and say, well, we know how that's going to turn out. That's going to turn out with Jesus Christ being bruised on the cross and yet crushing uh, the head of the serpent there. And that's certainly true. Uh, but long before that happens, Genesis 4 and 5, we begin to see two kinds of, uh, of families. Right? So the seed of Adam and Eve uh, lead to two kinds of families. Uh, one, uh, the, the line of Cain, uh, which is going to murder Abel. Uh, and then from Cain's line, you're going to have someone like Lamech, who boasts in his violence, and at the same time boasts in the two women that he marries. So already God's design for one man and one woman to be married together is already um, abandoned in Genesis 4, and so they're trying to strengthen themselves by the power of their own hands. Versus, if you look at Genesis chapter 4 and verse 26, you see to Seth, who was the son who came after Abel, to Seth also a son was born, he called his name Enosh, and at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. 
Right? So now we begin to see that there are people of faith who are crying out to God, seeking his face, and that line is going to then be picked up in the genealogy of Adam all the way to Noah and Genesis 5. Right? So there are two families that are moving forward, and that will continue to be at play from the people of Israel in Egypt, uh, the people of Israel with respect to Assyrian Babylon, all the way through uh, even to the time of, of Jesus Christ. So structure, seed, and then the Savior. Uh, they're just ways in which they're beginning to be promises here uh, that are preparing the way for uh, Jesus Christ to come. So in our reading plan, we are um, doing a little bit of Old Testament, a little bit of New Testament every mm -hmm. day. So we're going to jump to Matthew 2. And one of the things that um, we observed last night in Matthew 2 is that Herod, um, in verses 1 through 6, when he hears about baby Jesus, he's troubled. <laughs> And in verse 7, he goes, in 7 and 8 actually, he tells the wise men to go out and find Jesus so that he may worship him. Um, but we find out in verse 12 um, that the wise men in a dream are warned not to return to Herod. Mm -hmm. When King Herod in verse 8 claims he wants to go worship Jesus, he is asserting that he is a follower of Christ. Mm -hmm. But his motives were actually against Christ. Yeah. In the current culture, you see this situation all the time where politicians, famous people, and um, even Christians, uh, Christian leadership sometimes will claim Christianity or a relationship with Jesus, but their actions are contrary or continuously contrary to that claim. So my question is, is there a way to tell when a politician or a famous person or even a church leader is claiming to be a Christian for self-serving reasons such as power or money? Yeah. Uh, Easy question. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Sadly, we may not always be able to tell. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, again, I think that's an important question and one that certainly comes from, you know, reading a text like this. I, I think I'd start by just looking at Matthew and say, okay, what's going on here? Like, how is Matthew using worship here? Right? Because Herod is seeking to use worship for his own political ends, and we know that because we have inspired scripture that is revealing that to us. Right. right? And we know how the rest of the story goes. We also have a contrast um, in verse 2 uh, where it says uh, of, the, of the Magi, uh, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So amazingly, Matthew presents these foreign um, wise men or priests or royalty, whatever they are, coming from afar to worship Jesus. Right. Uh, and this is really fulfilling uh, not only the passage that is quoted here, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, um, but also something like Isaiah 60 where it says that the nations are going to come and bring gifts of gold and frankincense, right? And so that's what they're bringing there and they're worshiping. So there's a fulfillment uh, that is going on here. And what we see is two kinds of worship, right? True worship uh, that is literally coming and bowing before baby Jesus, King Jesus, um, as it's fulfilling scripture, and then false worship that is using worship for some other political gain, right? And so we certainly do see that. Uh, with politicians in our own day and those who are in power, uh, but we also see it closer to home. Right. right? We see it in our in our own churches. We see it in our own hearts. Listening to something earlier today uh, about the confusing message about um, how on Sundays we often can preach fire and brimstone. Right? There's a heaven and a hell, and you can only go to heaven if you believe in Jesus Christ by uh, the blood shed on the cross. But then at the funeral, somehow we become universalists. And this person who may have lived a wretched life, you know, surely he is in a better place. Surely she is with Jesus. Yes, 
30 and, million uh, times. And the author uh, of this book is Russell Moore in his book, The Storm Tossed Family, said, you know, at the funeral, at times, it seems as though uh, we can have a justification by embalming. Right. Right? You know, just because we don't want to say anything bad, and, and certainly not suggesting that you should say something bad in those moments, but we have to be true to the gospel. Right? And so as we read this, it reminds us to examine our own hearts. But then with our hearts examined, we should be able to look into the world and say, okay, what are the fruits that are being born? Right? Because Matthew goes on in Matthew 7 and talks about by their fruit, uh, you will know them. Right? So he is uh, speaking in Matthew 7, verse 15 through 19. And again, it's the fruit of our lives that bear witness for or against uh, the kind of people that we are, right? Right, and so as we look at politicians, as we look at pastors, as we look at friends, we look it's like, what's the fruit say? And uh, you know, sometimes we can't do much other than pray, and uh, certainly that is that is significant for us to pray. Sometimes that's all we can do with those in power, uh, but with one another in the church, uh, we are called to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, and to help one another to to walk in a way that's bearing fruit. Mary and I have been reading Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy mm -hmm. for our upcoming book club here at OBC on January 17th. Mm -hmm. In chapter two, we came across a word that we had never heard before called infanticide. Uh, am I saying that correctly? Yeah, infanticide. Okay. Yeah. Which means the killing of a child within its infancy. So they're saying that it's okay to ch kill a child in, in its infancy after it's born um, because even though uh, a child is recognized uh, as a human at mm -hmm. conception, they're saying that it's not a person yeah. until it's self-aware. Yeah. So uh, as Christians, how can we co combat the ever-growing push to end life, whether it be in the womb mm -hmm. or after the actual birth? Yeah. So, I mean, the reality is until Christ comes again, establishes his kingdom on the earth, I mean, that, there's going to be a spirit of this age that is going to rage against the image of God. Right. Right? And so you see that, you know, with Pharaoh seeking to throw the, the baby boys of Israel into the Nile. Right? There's a spirit, there is a, there is a demonic spirit behind that sort of thing. Right? You see the same thing in Israel when they were deceived by the nations and they would give their children over uh, as sacrifices right. to Moloch. Right? And so when Jesus speaks of the fires of hell, or the hell of fire really, it's Gehenna which is uh, a valley right next to the temple. And this became a, a trash dump in Israel. And before that, it was the place that the people of Israel, when they were worshiping false gods, would sacrifice their children therein, right? And so that carries on to today, yeah. right? Where there is a temptation in the spirit with, uh, with abortion uh, and others just, you know, the, instead of embracing this being fruitful and multiplying, Right? And again, it doesn't mean that families are to have as many children as they possibly can, right? But it does mean that we are to love children, we are to love the image of God. So to answer your question, Anton, I think part of it is just, okay, what does the Bible say about what it means to be human, right? And that humanity's dignity is not found in what they're able to think or do or say or any of those things. It's in the fact that they are made in the image of God, right? right. So Genesis uh, 1, 26 through 28, is just the cornerstone for that understanding. Uh, and I think that's something we need to do more of. This is why uh, Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, is so helpful, because just by and large, evangelicals have done a really poor job with the theology of the body, right? Uh, the Catholic Church has done much better with the theology of the body. We're really behind on that. 
Uh, and yet, as we go into the 21st century with the technologies in front of us, uh, artificial intelligence, which seems to be on the news every single day now, uh, it's like if we don't have a clear understanding of what it means to be human, uh, we're going to be at a loss. Right. Right. And so that obviously has impact for, you know, in the womb and conception, all the way to care for the elderly, right? Euthanasia uh, and all of those different uh, bioethical um, challenges that face us. So I would right. say let's start with what is a biblical understanding of creation, especially the image of God. Nancy Piercy's book is really helpful on that, and that's why we're having both men and women come together for our, our book study on January 17th to be able to talk about that because it's just such an important issue. If a man um, accidentally or intentionally does something to cause harm to a child in the womb, mm -hmm. he can be charged with murder. Yeah. But if that same woman yeah. decides to do something to that child in the womb, it's a right. Yeah. So it's very confusing. It's it's very self-serving. Yeah. Um, and it's basically a license to murder. We've given women yeah. a license to murder because of their gender. Yeah. yeah. I know that's not popular to say, but... No, and, and again, we have to say, okay, so how do we know what we know? Why do we believe what we believe? And what's our basis for these things, right? It can't just be pragmatism. It can't be overreaction against what we find in culture. As much as say, let's go back to the Bible, right, and say, what does the Bible say about these things, right? And so Psalm 139 is just an important verse, you know, that the fearfully and wonderfully made uh, is the child in the womb. Uh, and so even if the conception uh, comes by some means of egregious sin, uh, that life is from God, right. right? And so we have to be able to say, like we will read in Genesis 50, verse 20, perhaps what, God, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, Right, and to receive that child that is there and, and not to be overly harsh with those who have made those decisions, but at the same time to have our worldview shaped not just by the, the, the winds of this age and what seems to be right in today, but from the eternal Word of God. Matthew three thirteen through 17 describes the baptism of Jesus Christ. Mm. So there's been a lot of debate um, in reference to is baptism a requirement of salvation? Mm. Do you have an answer for that? Uh, sure. I'll, I'll pull my theologian card. Uh, yes and no, right? Uh, if, if we say that baptism is not a requirement of salvation, uh, we might be technically right, but we would also be saying that it's not important, right? right? Uh, if we say, yes, it is a requirement, then we'd be going too far if we're thinking of water baptism because, again, it is uh, what the Lord does uh, that saves us and not some response of our religious activity before him. So maybe just to turn the question a little bit, so scripture speaks of the fact that baptism, Jesus describes his baptism, uh, he describes his cross as a baptism, right? So Matthew 3 describes him going under the water there, identifying himself with the people of Israel, not repenting of his sin, right? There's not a vicarious repentance that he is doing in uh, his baptism. Uh, rather, he's identifying with the people of God. We know that in part because uh, of where the baptism is. It's in the Jordan River. The Jordan River is the place where the people of Israel entered the land as they came into Canaan, right? So Joshua is the one who uh, parted uh, the sea, or I should say God is the one who parted the Jordan River at flood stages to bring the people of God into the land. So this is what happens in the very beginning of Joshua. And so now a new Joshua 
is identifying himself and God is identifying him as this new leader in Israel. He goes through the baptism. He's identifying himself with the people of Israel. And then uh, this is what starts his ministry. And he's going to be fulfilling all these other promises and all these other types and shadows in the Old Testament. Right? So that's what he's beginning to do there. But ultimately, Christ is not just going to go through water. He's going to go through the fire of God. Right. right. He's going to go to the cross, and on the cross there is a baptism that he experiences on the cross. And there is where we must say, you will only be saved if you die with Christ and are raised with him in the baptism he experienced on the cross. Right. So Romans 6 will talk about the fact that those who are in Christ have died with him and therefore will be raised with him. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 speaks of the fact that we must be baptized into the Spirit. And those who are baptized into the Spirit or baptized with the Spirit are done so not by any human hands, but by the hands of Christ, right? He is the one who, who gives His Spirit, who raises people from the dead. And in that way, there's a sense in which baptism is essential for salvation because it's the Spirit's work in the life of a person. And when that happens then we give public testimony to our faith in Christ by means of water baptism, right? And so the church is then delegated with the responsibility to recognize those who have faith and repentance, and then they baptize them in the water, which is symbolic of that death and resurrection with Jesus Christ. And so in that way, the water baptism is not something that saves, it is symbolic and representative of the person who has been baptized in the Spirit by Jesus Christ. So in that way, baptism that we do at church does not save, but it does bear witness to the right. salvation that God does. And in Scripture, if we're going to let all of Scripture speak, that also is spoken of as a baptism. So when do you know it's time to be baptized? Is it at birth, when you first accept Christ? Yeah. So the pattern that we find in Acts uh, is for people to hear the gospel and then to respond in faith and repentance and then to be baptized, right? So we believe, I mean, so our statement of faith is a, is a baptistic statement of faith. Uh, we believe that baptism is something that you do in response uh, to the gospel, right? In other words, somebody who is born again will give evidence of faith and repentance in their life and then one step of obedience to publicly identify themselves with Christ is water baptism, right? To say it a slightly different way, um, you know, it is by the Spirit that God creates uh, His children, right. right? We are born not by flesh or by the will of the Father, but by the Spirit of God who raises us from the dead. But the way that the church then goes public, if you will, is through water baptism, Right? So if the gospel goes to a new place, never heard the gospel before, the way that a church is constituted is through water baptism. As the people who have believed the gospel and are saved by the Spirit of God, uh, then identify themselves with Christ publicly, and as others are added to the number, they are baptized as well. That seems to be the pattern uh, that we find in Acts. That seems to be the meaning of the word baptism. Uh, there's some other arguments that we could dive into as well. That's probably sufficient for now. If you have questions for David, please send them to viaemmaus at obc.org. You may hear responses in our upcoming episodes. Via Emmaus is a podcast of Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. 
For more resources related to this episode and the gospel-centered ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.